Artistic Whispers Productions presents... Down from 10, a country house mystery written and performed by J. Daniel Sawyer. Author contact information at www.jdsawyer.net. Featuring the vocal talents of... Philippa Ballantyne. T. Morris. Kitty Nakian. Nathan Lowell. Miss Calendar. Nobilis Reed. Christiana Ellis. Chris Lester. With original music by Danny Shade. This podcast contains adult language, sexual situations, and bizarre humor. Listener discretion is advised. Hi, this is Philip Valentine. I play Carol in Down From Ten, and you can find my works and worlds at pjvalentine.com. My current project is Weatherchild, which you can find at weatherchild.com. You're listening to episode three of Down From Ten, and this is the story so far. The Xanadu retreat is off to a raucous start, but not everyone has their bearings yet. The evening's final guest, Jeremiah, has arrived in time to hear the rules and endure a bit of a hazing from the regulars. He's not taking it well, but he seems to have something in common with Kevin, the group's resident physicist. Meanwhile, as the afternoon hastens towards evening, other attendees are catching up on their lives from the last year, getting to know each other better, and making a significant dent in the Shiraz supply. Chapter 2. E-10. Evening. The fire was finally doing its job. Katie shrugged out of the top of her coveralls and tied the arms around her waist, then reached for her goblet again. Her light tank top didn't trap heat like the battered old denim. And at that point, the teacher finds out. Katie raised her glass to her lips. Then when she got nothing out of it, she fixed it with a vexed glare. I'm in the mood for a chewier wine anyway. She swung her arms out over the arm of the couch and tumbled to her feet, then looked back at Amos as she strode to the kitchen, pulling him behind her with the power of the delayed punchline. Adele had put them in the fridge to chill, somewhere in the middle shelf behind the... Ah, no. Top shelf behind the milk. She seized the Rubbermaid box full of wined grapes and snaked them out from between the tottering condiment bottles. Between Adele and Carol and Kevin, the fridge was packed with a dozen in-progress culinary experiments. She could feel Amos nearly breathing down her neck, so she turned around and popped a Chardonnay pickled seedless in his mouth and continued her story. So, anyway, I was like, no, 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 I said sects! She raised an enigmatic eyebrow at him. The nuns didn't buy it. (laughs) Not a chance. They took me to the head of the class and whipped me raw. Katie cringed internally at the memory, but it was worth it to see Amos wince. Scarred you for life? I'll show you later if you like. Amos raised his eyebrows and nodded to himself, as if it weren't a half-bad idea at that. She knew perfectly well he wouldn't take her up on the offer. Previous encounters showed her that his eyes tended to settle elsewhere in the group. But he never rebuffed her. He always played back, as if someday, something might just tease him out from behind the brick wall he kept built high around himself. He wasn't what her mother would have called socially acceptable or polite, and he wasn't a sweetheart, but she'd yet to walk away from him without feeling complimented. 
Katie idly wondered whether Carol was going to get off her ass this week and do something about his settling eyes, or not. She winked and ducked around him to find a bowl from the cupboard. The scent of grapes had her mouth watering all over again. Amos set his empty pint glass down and pulled his stout frame up onto the counter. So the new class. You keeping your marble so far? He grabbed another Chardonnay grape from the tub and popped it in his mouth, then leaned back as Gerd squeezed by. Oh, you'd love it. All my students this semester are high schoolers humping for double credits. It's fabulous. Katie grabbed the tub from Amos and dumped the contents, Chardonnay and all, into a serving bowl. It is not something I value much in history, students. It is a naivete of youth. Gerd reached past Katie and grabbed a plate from the still-open cupboard. Not in literature, either. You wouldn't believe the shit they fall for when they get fed Derrida or Foucault without any context. Amos and Gerd? Now that would be an interesting fight. Katie considered keeping her mouth shut and watching the two of them scrap for a bit, but as soon as the thought crossed her mind, she discarded it. They were both of a depressingly similar mindset on the topic of students. Gerd didn't seem to remember why he got into teaching in the first place, and Amos adjuncted as little as he could get away with and still make rent. She'd need to do a little more work to get the fur flying properly. Hey, 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 pick on someone your own size! Katie crossed her arms indignantly. Them's my peeps you're talking about, and they're too dead now to defend themselves. Leave it to a couple of materialists to beat up on the most important minds in artistic philosophy. I think you've just made my point. Their theories are as dead as they are. Amos popped another grape into his mouth and donned a self-satisfied grin. Watch it, Nino. Garrett won't stand for you picking on his countrymen like that. Non, chérie. But Sartre, they are the pestilence of Paris. Garrett shook his head sadly at her. Oh, you're no fun anymore. You speak a bit early in the retreat, n'est-ce pas? <laughs> Next time I want my French fix, I'll go to Gay Paris and leave you stodgy old straight guys here to dump on it. She popped a grape into her mouth and concentrated on the intense burst of sour-sweet dryness in order to keep her air of condescending opprobrium going. It wasn't easy with these two. Both of them outclassed her in academics, but she was miles ahead of either of them in horse sense and was determined to get them to notice. Face it, Katie. Amos's eyes sparkled with restrained amusement. They've had their bones picked dry by their disciples. They were irresponsible thinkers, and they've sown a lot of grief in a world that took them too seriously. But in art, such recklessness is good, is it not? Now they'd get into it. Gerd, the lover of life against Amos, the truth whore. This was a matchup she'd been waiting to see. All that passion, that anxiety. Seeing it pushed full force into the flower of youth, rushing headlong into technicolor tragedy. Not all that is beautiful is not wasteful. If they direct it, sure, it's good raw material. And it keeps me on my toes. As Katie spoke, Gerd's demeanor shifted. A look of concern crossed his face, and he stiffened. She followed his eyes and saw Amos. Amos's smile was gone. He seemed to stare blankly through Gerd for half a second. Then he set his jaw unpleasantly and slid off the counter. Standing with his shoulders squared off like he wanted to throw a punch, he kept staring through Gerd as if he expected the larger man to raise his fists. He whipped his gaze over to Katie and mumbled, You always were too patient for my own good. Excuse me. Amos turned and marched quickly from the room. Katie turned back to Gerd. Was it something I said? No, mon ami. 
Gerd laid his hand on her shoulder, but continued looking after Amos. It is not a choose that he is angry. I'll go see how he's no, doing. No, he will not help. Let him be. I will take care of him later. Ah, the great international male code of silence. It is a sacred brotherhood. Well, these students of yours. Kevin stood up, almost rudely, and walked over to the fire guttering behind the glass doors, stopping Jeremiah in mid-sentence. Ten minutes ago, the dancer would have taken it as an insult, but Sarah was curled up against him, and the knit afghan he had wrapped around his shoulders felt... homey. Kevin wasn't a tall man, but he was lean, and his broad shoulders were impressive even under his loose Oxford shirt. He was only nerdy-looking from the neck up, and... Besides, he was an interesting guy, and he seemed to have some kind of clue about the world. The whole event, as weird as it was, might turn out okay after all. Still, when Kevin just stood up and walked over to the hearth, Jeremiah didn't quite know what to do with himself. He grabbed his glass and took a sip of his soda water to buy some time. Sorry, Jeremiah, keep going. I just gotta throw a couple more carbon offsets on here to keep us all from freezing. Kevin's manner was gruff, but he had one of those gentle voices. He'd said he was a professor. He must have been a good one. He had a way of setting a guy at ease. Okay. So anyway, that's what I try to do. Jeremiah warmed back up to his favorite subject and set his glass down again. But people just sit around and all these corporate stooge scientists are playing games with life. Kevin sorted through the woodpile, examining each log as if he were searching for something in particular. Jeremiah couldn't tell what, and he bristled when Kevin mumbled a bland... Appalling, eh? ...over his shoulder at him. Jeremiah trudged on while the lanky man tossed a pair of split pine wedges on the embers, and then lovingly deposited a eucalyptus log atop them. It's worse than that. They'll turn life into just another product if we don't rein them in now. Nobody in the media even reports it. Kevin closed the fire door and returned his full attention to Jeremiah. He trailed his fingertip idly down Carol's neck and arm as he walked back to his seat, the heat following him back to the sofa. Can you imagine what'll happen when corporations can own the exclusive right to create the seeds for the food we eat? Hmm. Kevin scooped up his drink and collapsed again into his seat, burrowing down in and drawing a blanket back across his lap. I thought they already did. Sarah shifted her weight away from Jeremiah and leaned against Kevin's legs, leaving Jeremiah feeling a little lost and naked. Warmer? Thanks, it helps. Kevin patted her on her shoulder and then turned his earnest gaze to Jeremiah and abruptly changed the subject. Sarah tells me you're quite a dancer. Oh, that. Jeremiah took another sip. Thanks. He smiled at Sarah. She smiled back at him. In the half hour since he'd been here, he'd seen her smile more than he had in the last three months of show rehearsals. It looked pretty on her. We're rehearsing a rock version of the three, um, the play that Mac the Knife comes from. The Three Penny Opera. Right, that. You should see him up there. He plays Mac, and he does these jumps in the final scene that you wouldn't believe. He vaults off one girl's shoulders and over four others. Jeremiah blushed. It's her choreography. I just try to keep from cracking my head open. Kevin raised his eyebrows. Impressive. I couldn't move that way even when I was your age. The professor's approval stroked him more than he expected it to, but he found that he didn't mind. It felt nice. He just couldn't think of any good way to continue the conversation without looking like he was self-absorbed. 
Sitting on his pillow, Jeremiah tried to look as satisfied with the silence as he could, but Sarah spotted his discomfort and tried to get things moving again. He was beginning to like this off-hours version of her. She looked up at Kevin and said, How about that scary weather coming tomorrow? Got anything you need to get out of the car before we get buried in? Oh, I've got everything I need already, but I think we'll be fine. Yeah. Jeremiah jumped back in, determined to find the rhythm to impress Sarah, if nothing else. There's been a drought here for the last three years. We won't get half the snow that big guy said we would. I don't know. Garrett's pretty reliable. Jeremiah shook his head. The chances of this area ever getting that kind of snow again are pretty slim. At least they were back on a subject he could actually talk about. Kevin looked confused. Greenhouse effect. Global warming. You're the physicist. Oh, that. Yeah. I don't know. We might be okay. I gave a symposium at Syngenta last year with a couple geneticists. They're working on this algae that sucks CO2 right out of the air. Oh, come on, man. Don't do that. That's not cool. Uh, don't tell me. You're not just against GM crops. You're against all biotech. I'm against corporate biotech. Obviously, there has to be some government research to help fight bird flu and AIDS and things. Jeremiah shook his head. Kevin seemed like a smart fellow. He should understand this. And you're worried about the state of the world's poor? Damn right. What kind of question was that? They've been ground under our imperialist heel long enough. And you care about habitat destruction and species extinction? Didn't I just tell you? So what kind of environmentalist are you? What? This wasn't right. Jeremiah suddenly felt like he'd just run off a cliff after a roadrunner. Let's take them in order. Kevin took a sip of his scotch, then leaned forward and gestured with an open palm. Without biotech crops... The world will keep losing topsoil and running thin on fresh water and ruining wetlands we'll find without... find The risks are too big. Cross-pollinating with real plants and ruining the environment. All our food crops owned by megacorporations. And, and who knows what kind of cancers these things will cause. It's too dangerous. There are a lot of people in the world. What's your alternative? How will they all eat? It used to be that family farms could make their own way with natural seeds. Natural seeds? You mean seeds that haven't been altered by human action? Yes. Finally, he gets it. Look. Dude. Corn and wheat and oats and rice all used to be grass before humans started fucking with them. That kind of natural doesn't exist. Jeremiah crinkled his brow and looked at Kevin with wounded eyes. Kevin was a college professor. He really seemed to care. The world needed people like him. What kind of corporate crap had he been reading? What is your problem, man? You say you worry about the future, but you're sitting here spouting all this corporatist shit. Corporatist, my ass. I do worry about the future. I worry about what will happen if more people start buying into the good old days malarkey and the idea that somehow humans aren't part of nature. But we have to reduce our impact on other species. I agree. Kevin took another sip of his scotch, then another. Really? Jeremiah felt like he was being led into another trap. Kevin nodded earnestly. So what's your malfunction? Okay, here's my problem. You're against nuclear power. You're against genetic engineering. You're against nanotech. You're against trade. You say you care about the health of the biosphere and the plight of the poor. Have I got all that right? Yes. My malfunction is that you can't have all these things at once. It's basic physics. You can't get an increase in a system's efficacy without increasing energy input into the system. It's got to come from somewhere. If they burn coal, it's just going to pollute more. That's why we need wind and solar. They're nice. They can help. Kevin inclined his head magnanimously. 
but they can't do the job on their own. Not yet, but they'll find something that'll work. They? Kevin's face screwed up like he was trying to understand a foreign language. You're against the corporations that would do the work. Even if the government funded everything, do you think all the implementation is going to be done in government or university labs? I said I'm against corporate biotech. Why don't you, you know, listen occasionally? Jeremiah gripped his glass so tightly he thought it might shatter in his hands, but goddammit, this fucking guy just kept running around in circles. Okay, look. Without genetic engineering, poor farmers in the Amazon and Borneo will keep cutting down rainforests to find fertile ground instead of planting crops that can survive on the kind of soil they have, and even replenish like clover does. Without nuclear power, or maybe geothermal, they'll have to burn coal to get the energy to build industries to lift them out of poverty. Wait, hold on. You grow that much more food, and the population is going to explode until... So it's better that people starve to death. I didn't say that. It was all Jeremiah could do not to leap to his feet and slap him. Where did this corporatist fuck get off? Kevin kicked himself. He should have known better. Some people were amenable to education, but this kid was taking this argument way too personally. He knew he should just drop it before it got out of hand. Back off try another track, maybe something would get through. Oh, you're right. I'm sorry. Kevin took a breath, rolled his neck from side to side, and tried to shake off his irritation. I get worked up about this stuff. Let's go a different way. Uh, what about cloning and GM animals? Jeremiah stared at Kevin slack-jawed, as if Kevin had just suggested they barbecue a child for dinner. Are you kidding? No, I'm not kidding. The animals we raise for food are one of the biggest sources of pollution and river poisoning and waste in the we world. We shouldn't be raising animals for food in the first place. We don't have any right to enslave and torture other animals for our own ends. What makes us so special that we have the right to play God with plants and animals? The, the third world... What in the hell do you think makes rich Westerners so special that they have the right to tell starving people in developing countries what industries they can build, or what food they can eat, or what pesticides they can use? Well, it seems pretty racist... Kevin. Carol's voice was sharp enough to stop a charging elephant. Kevin looked over to her seat. She wasn't reclining anymore. She was sitting straight up and looking right through him. He'd just leapt over the line, and he knew it the moment the words were out of his mouth. Fuck. Manners! Kevin stood up, realizing belatedly that he was robbing Sarah of her backrest. He grabbed a pillow from the couch and tucked it behind her, trying to control his temper. You're right. I shouldn't let idiots without a wit of real research under their belts get to me. Kevin stepped over Sarah and passed Jeremiah. The kid muttered, Fascist shell. Right on time, like he'd been reading it from a script. No surprise. An object in asshole mode would stay in asshole mode unless acted upon by an outside force. Preferably one that behaved like a chainsaw. The physicist stalked off to the far end of the living room where he broke out his easel and tried to center himself. He couldn't paint when he was this wound up, and somehow working out on the weight bench felt like conceding. But he didn't want the twerp to know how close he'd come to wiping the floor with him, and he had to do something, so setting up was as good a pretext as any for cooling off. He wished Carol would be more selective about the people she brought in. Last year there was the woman who stayed drunk for half the week. The year before there had been the couple that insisted on moralizing any time someone traded partners. Being open and welcoming was one thing, but when people piss all over your hospitality... After the canvas, he inventoried his paints, and he sharpened his pencils. Maybe, with a little judicious use of his protractor, he could get a good angle on something. 
If this was going to go on again this year, he might have to leave early and not come back next year. Is any of this safe to eat? Sarah didn't hear at first. She was too busy shaking her head and trading apologetic looks with Carol. She might be the baby of the group, but she didn't fancy being the one who brought the party pooper to fuck up the retreat. She didn't notice Jeremiah's pestering until Carol gently gestured towards him with her eyes. What? This. Jeremiah waved his left hand vaguely at the tray on the table. Is any of it safe to eat? Of course. Like they were gonna poison him. Adele made these especially for you. She reached for the tray and grabbed a slice of beet. You might even like them if you pull the stick out of your ass. Jeremiah rolled his eyes at her. You invited me. I don't need to hear this shit from you, too. Used to be people respected other people's beliefs. Okay, fine. I'm sorry. Jesus. Eh, He was right. It wasn't fair. Sarah had asked everyone to put him through the paces because she wanted to be sure about him, but the conversation with Kevin had gotten away from her before she could stop it. Maybe it was too much all at once. She hung her head for a moment to find her composure, then smiled at him and pushed a slice of beet to his lips. For a moment, he smiled at her. She'd hoped he would. She looked into his dark, angry eyes, and for almost twenty seconds, she saw something like tenderness. The same thing she saw in him when he danced. Hola, mis amigos! And, of course, it was all cut short by a dive-bombing Katie. She plopped down on the floor pillow next to Jeremiah as if she'd flown here in the lotus position. I heard there were fireworks. So, Sarah, who's the new boy? You saw him come in. What, am I supposed to introduce everyone now? Ain't my fault you brought the new people this year, Cucaracha. And all of them so much fun! Katie bumped Jeremiah playfully with her shoulder, but with her attention wrapped on Sarah, she didn't notice Jeremiah shifting uncomfortably away from her. He was back to being all prickles again. Damn. I didn't bring Adele. Well, you seem to know her. Katie popped a beet slice into her mouth and raised an insinuative eyebrow in Sarah's general direction. Only because I got here first and actually met people instead of spending all afternoon feeling up the hostess. Katie conceded the point with a shrug. Adele came with Carol. Amos, too. So when's the wedding? Katie leaned back and blinked at him like she was a cat whose dignity had just been insulted. Excuse me? You're like an old married couple. Understanding crept across Katie's face like a conspiracy theory. You mean she hasn't... Ah, pardon. If she won't do the dirty work, I guess I'll have to do it for her. I'm Katie Sato. Jeremiah Evans. Jeremiah extended his hand, and Katie took it. Sarah braced herself for the inevitable question. Secret husband? Katie winked at her. Goddess, no. I never saw this bean pull before I cast him. Hmm, must be impressive for you to want to drag him all the way out here. Sarah leaned forward and gave Katie a stage whisper. I've heard epic rumors from the other boys in the show. She glanced meaningfully at his crotch and gave her eyebrows a Groucho Marx waggle. Hello, I am here. Not on display in a store window. Jeremiah's body language had shifted, if it were possible, even further towards the uncomfortable end of the emotional gradient. Sarah fully expected him to have to resort to yoga positions next. Katie, on the other hand, seemed to have different ideas. Oh, don't worry. Girls on top here, Jerry. You'll get used to it. Be careful, Katie did. He hates being treated like a side of beef. Jeremiah's face wrinkled as he muttered. Fucking carnivore. Tolerance goes two ways, you know. Sarah wanted to thump him. He always was an asshole, but normally he had a sense of humor. He always rolled with the ribbing he got from the gay boys in the cast and never seemed upset when they tried to sneak chicken into his food. Oh, yeah. Your friends are all shining examples. 
Jeremiah grabbed his drink from the end table roughly and slammed the rest of the soda, then stood up and jumped over Katie, stalking over to the far corner of the living room. He stopped briefly when he realized he was nearly eye-to-eye with Kevin. The two of them stood for a second, as if trying to stare each other down, before Kevin waved magnanimously to a solitary antique chair next to him, then set down his box of paints and walked measuredly out the back door to the solarium. Jeremiah seemed to shrink by three inches as soon as Kevin's back was turned. He took two long steps to the old wooden seat and plopped down upon it in a heap of his own indignation. Sarah sighed. He'd come around. She knew he would. But why couldn't he just fucking relax? She pulled herself up onto the couch and leaned on the end table facing Katie. Katie matched her, hopping from her perch on the floor onto the chair that Jeremiah no longer sat in front of. She pulled her legs under her thighs and looked around the edge of the wing back to make sure Jeremiah wasn't watching them, then turned back to Sarah and opened her mouth almost as wide as her eyes. Bit prickly, isn't he? Ah, give him a bit. He's got his identity tied into this activism thing. He just came from a rally, so it's on his mind. Give him a couple days, you won't be able to keep your hands off him. I can believe that. He's gorgeous. Katie snaked her head up to the edge of the wing back and peered around again, mostly for Sarah's benefit. Just wait till you see how he moves. He'll give you something to sculpt. Katie leaned across the table and kissed Sarah's lips quickly, then followed it with a grape pushed firmly between her teeth. When the skin broke, Sarah couldn't decide whether to relish the juice or complain that it was a grape rather than a tongue. Before she could make up her mind, she felt Katie's breath on her ear. Behave yourself or I'll have Garrett spank you. Katie pulled back and raised her eyebrows in an attempt to be toppy, but she couldn't pull it off as well as Carol did. Oh no, ma'am. Please don't throw me into the briar patch. You're an incorrigible little brat, aren't you? Ah, but you love me that way. Don't let it get to your head, sweetie. Katie patted Sarah condescendingly on the head, then absconded while Sarah was still quivering from the attention. When Sarah opened her eyes again, she found herself alone at one end of the conversation pit. At the other end, Carol and Gerd conferred quietly in a way that reminded Sarah of old friends playing chess in a park. Sarah scooted down the couch and joined the circle, determined not to miss anything interesting. The midwinter sun hung low in the western sky, sketching the dusky outline of a rampart of mountains separating the valley from the coast. Carol's front porch wrapped around the side of the house, overlooking a deep gorge cutting through the mountains and the foothills below, providing a view all the way to the mountains on the other side of the valley. Amos pulled the cold air deep into his lungs, holding it and letting them ache. On the coast, the light would be just right to scatter flower petals on the waves and watch them float out to sea on the rip currents. Here, there was no movement but the breeze sweeping up off the warmer valley floor and across the mountainsides already buried months long under the snow. The earth waited patiently for its springtime awakening. Looking out over the barren land in the failing light, he wondered if the spring could bring back the fertility that had fled with the madness of October. The cold felt right. 
He pulled his coat tight about his body and lost himself in the dusky yellow-orange. Darkness would come soon enough, the time of day when he best blended in. But dusk was a close second, when the sky glowed dimly with the last light of day, leaking the color of regret in deep blue shadows over the land. Regret? Or was it guilt? Was there any difference between them? The muted cacophony in the house at his back opened up full for a moment as he heard Sarah lamenting in full Sarah Bernhardt melodrama. Amos heard the front door close again, and he looked to his left in time to see Gerd stride purposefully around the corner, bundled up in his overcoat. The Frenchman wore a smile and shook his head like a father trying too hard not to laugh at his child's latest off-color joke. Before Amos could pipe up with a, Really, I want to be alone, Gerd was at his side. Mon dieu, but it can be crowded in there. The larger man chuckled and reclined against the rail at an arm's distance. Amos nodded and looked back at the sunset. The orange glow fading into deep blue marked the day's slow death. It can. The temperature was dropping fast now. The snow which had melted under the sun and made the roads wet would freeze soon, making even the most careful drive back down the highway foolish. Any thought Amos had of riding off the retreat as a bad idea was gone until tomorrow. Not that he really had anything to go back to, It was just that his reasons for staying didn't seem up to his desire to be alone. Out of the corner of his eye, he could see Gerd studying him, but he did his best to ignore it. The passing of the day was a sacred thing, a little death that deserved its own moment of silence as the retreating light painted the sky with the colors of its defeat. The Frenchman reached into his coat pocket. Tell me, my friend. He produced a pair of cigars and shimmied the first of them out of its wrapper. How is it that a writer is a man of so few words? It happens. Gerd's left hand, with practiced efficiency, sorted through the items on his keychain until it came upon a punch cutter. A twist of his fingers and a round blade deployed from the end of the small cylinder. He sank it into the cap of the first cigar. Perhaps you spend them all on the page, eh? Gerd held the cigar out to Amos. Despite having seen more or less what Gerd was up to, it took Amos a moment to realize that Gerd was offering him a smoke, and a very nice one at that, a Fuente Opus X Churchill. Oh. Amos started a bit, then accepted the cigar and ran it under his nose. It smelled vaguely of vegetation, dark chocolate, and cow dung. He smiled and signaled his thanks with a dip of his brow. Maybe we do with that. Gerd clamped a second Churchill gingerly between his teeth and produced a box of matches from his coat pocket, handing them to Amos. I find always that the matches are the best for the cigars, do you not? No chemicals to cloud the taste. Amos nodded at Gerd's appraisal and struck one against the side of the box. With the relaxed confidence of an old hand, he warmed the end over the flame before putting the cigar in his mouth and sucking just a bit. He rotated the rolled tobacco over the flame until the end was evenly lit. Mm. Amos blew solidly through the cigar once to clear out the tar, then took one long drag, filling his mouth with the blue and coating his tongue with the bold, dark stew of earthy flavors. Yeah. The wood's just more burning vegetable matter. They go together. He handed the matchbox back to its owner. Well, it's true. Gerd, with more practiced grace than Amos dared hope he'd possess at the man's age, lit his own cigar quickly. 
For a moment, the two men contented themselves with blowing short-lived clouds of blue into the cold air, until the silence slid from companionable to stilted. What brings you up to this little soiree? Oh, you must be joking, my friend. I would not miss it. Not if the world fell down around me. Gerd's gaze swept from Amos and out to the valley below, where the distant electrical fires of Redding flickered to life. Amos followed his gaze and smoke into the night. That's pretty devout. Maybe. But Carol, I have known her since she was my student, and never does she age except to grow more lovely. The mind is a razor, and the playfulness of the tiger she has, may we? <laughs> Good description. And you? What brings you up into these mountains, away from your beloved coastal waters? Well, you've met Carol. You really need to ask? Amos took another long pull from the cigar. The flavors in his mouth danced between coffee and vegetable. Indeed, indeed. Katie, she tells me you've spent much time with Kevin and Carol, yet you have not been to the retreats before. It was never the right time. This year, well, all the pieces were in the right place. It was time. Gerd rested one hip on the handrail and leaned back against a column. He chuckled and shook his head. Your riddles are no less perplexing in person than they are in your books, my friend. Glad I don't disappoint. Amos blew another cloud of blue at the last flash of disappearing orange. All that was left of the day now was a phosphorescent glow over the western horizon. It always disappears so fast. Oui, it does. Gerd's voice seemed to come quietly as if whispered from miles away. A lot can happen in the dark. Voices. Faces. The darkness out there will never swallow up the darkness a man carries with him. Amos nodded. No, it won't. But it blends. There wasn't a point in playing evasion games. The Frenchman was a perceptive bastard, and he obviously wanted Amos to feel at home. Problem was, home was the last place Amos wanted to feel. He inclined his head to Gerd, something he hoped looked like thanks or deference. Thanks for the Fuente. I'm going to take a walk before it gets cold. The cigar perched between his thumb and his forefinger. Amos strode past Gerd. Halfway down the drive, he heard the man's voice calling after him. Mind the eyes. He waved without looking back, continuing forward out of the driveway lights and into the darkness of the mountain road. As the author left the drive, Gerd took a final pull on his own cigar before perching it on the edge of the handrail to burn out. He couldn't help wondering whether Amos would return from his walk. There was something missing when Gerd looked in his eyes. Something dead and rotting at the heart of the man. The chilled wind blew up from the valley and cut through his coat like it wasn't there. He could hear Sarah's voice carousing inside. The sound of youth without pretense. Gerd turned his back on the cold, the dark, and the writer who haunted them both, and returned again to the warmth within.
You've been listening to episode 3 of Down From 10, written and performed by J. Daniel Sawyer, with original music by Danny Shade, used with permission. Starring T. Morris as Amos Maple, Philippa Ballantyne as Carol Lewis, Nathan Lowell as Gerd Falkstein, Miss Callender as Sarah Evans, Kitty Nakian as Katie Sato, Nobilis Reed as Kevin Walden, Chris Lester as Jeremiah Evans, and Christiana Ellis as Adele Surhan. Some sounds courtesy the Free Sound Project at www.freesound.org. Other sounds copyright 2009, Katie McKeon and Artistic Whispers Productions. This audiobook is recorded, edited, and mixed at Artistic Whispers Productions in Castro Valley, California. The book is copyright 2009, J. Daniel Sawyer, based on a screenplay copyright 2008, J. Daniel Sawyer, and the recording is copyright 2009, Artistic Whispers Productions. This recording is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 3.5 license, and all other rights are reserved to the author. Hi, my name's Jack Hosley, and I'm here to tell you about a contest that Arlene Radowski is holding about her book, The Fox. She's looking for questions that can be used in a book club discussions. And she will put your name in a hat once she gets your question. So the winner will be drawn on Sunday, August 1st, 2009. Send them in to her at www.radowski.com. Click on the Contact Me button and send her your question. She will put your name into a hat. And on August 1st, 2009, which is a Sunday, she will pick a lucky winner for a signed copy of the book, The Fox, to be sent anywhere in the world. So everybody is eligible to win this book. If you haven't listened to the book yet, you can go to patiobooks.com and listen to it there. And then form your question and send it off to Arlene Rodowski. Hi, this is Mark Smith with Buffy Between the Lines and soon to be Angel Between the Lines, and you're listening to J. Daniel Sawyer's Down from Ten. Hmm, what's up with Amos? I wonder. So there's episode three. Next week we get to the end of chapter two and some hopefully interesting surprises that kick off the mystery part of the book. Thanks for joining me so far. I hope you'll stick around and enjoy this strange world in the mountain cabin with me. The name of Gerd Falkstein has excited a bit of interest on Twitter. Nobilis, who plays Kevin in this podcast and who runs the Nobilis Erotica podcast at www.nobiliserotica.net, was particularly vexed by the name because it kept ringing some strange bells for him. Of course, Nobilis being a bright guy and far more geeky than I could ever hope to be, he figured it out pretty quickly, or at least half of it. He guessed correctly that he's named after Herr Falkstein from Young Frankenstein. He was the executor of Grandfather Victor's will. Of course, the first name comes from a different place entirely. Gerd's first name comes from Gerd Ludemann, a radical biblical scholar in Germany who has a knack for pissing off people in his own discipline, even though he has a reputation as a very personable fellow. Yeah, I know, I read too much, so shoot me. 
The launch cast with T. Morris, Philippa Ballantyne, Chris Lester, Kitty Nakian, and several listener call-ins was a great success, and I'll be mixing that down along with a new Dealing In in a couple of weeks. First, I have to get the last of the Predestination remixes done and off to Patio Books, but when it posts, it's gonna leave you in stitches. It's even wilder than the Reprobates Hour Double Trouble Show or the Sex Roundtables or Dealing In. Prepare to laugh yourself silly. One last bit of news. If you're listening on the Antithesis feed, be aware that only the first ten episodes of Down From Ten will be posting there. After that, you'll need to switch to either the Down From Ten feed or to the jdsawyer.net Uber feed. You can find all of my www.jdsawyer.net. So it looks like Predestination and Down From Ten will be hitting patio books at about the same time, somewhere around the 15th to 20th of this month. Next week is the week I start listing Down From Ten on the big services, and it's going to be interesting to see what that does because there's already so many of you here, and I can't wait to see how many of you stick around and how many of you bring your friends. But that means next week there will be news on where to leave reviews, And um, as always, of course, even now, you can leave questions, comments, criticisms, attaboys, death threats, and whatever else you like, except spam, please, um, by emailing me at dan at jdsawyer.net or commenting on the blog at downfrom10.jdsawyer.net. And of course, as always, you can call and leave a voicemail at area code 206-350-5739. And if you're enjoying yourself, please do tell your friends. I will see you next week, and until then, always remember, you can make the whole world end if you but count down from ten.